today on Against the Grain. He was an artist and craftsman whose designs are still admired and revered, but William Morris was more than that. He was a socialist and, in his day, one of England's most prominent critics of capitalism. I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with Michael Robertson about the life and ideas and utopian inclinations of William Morris coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. William Morris, the inspiration for the arts and crafts movement, wore many hats, designer, craftsman, poet, and writer. What many people don't know is that he became a committed socialist and a utopian thinker, someone who thought beyond capitalism to a better, more equal, more just future. William Morris, born in 1834, put many of his utopian imaginings into a novel called News from Nowhere. My guest today says that book was the 19th century's greatest dream of freedom. In the future community portrayed in News from Nowhere, there is no government, no money, no courts, and no schools. My guest, Michael Robertson, is professor of English at the College of New Jersey and author of The Last Utopians, Four Late Nineteenth-Century Visionaries and Their Legacy. In the book, Michael Robertson tells the story of four utopian thinkers and writers, William Morris, Edward Bellamy, Edward Carpenter, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Michael agreed to talk in depth with me about William Morris, When he joined me recently via Skype, I began by asking him why he calls these four writers the last utopians. These four utopians writers were in some sense indeed the last utopians. The last of the utopian novels that I talk about, Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, is published in 1915, one year after the commencement of the First World War. And in many ways, One of the casualties of the First World War was the utopian speculation that had flourished in the preceding 25 years. So after World War I, the next great speculative fiction you get is Yevgeny Zamyatin's We, which is the precursor, a great dystopian precursor of Brave New World, 1984, and all the plethora of dystopian novels that come to define, in many ways, the 20th century. And you write about an exceptional period of utopian writing and experimentation in the U.S. and the U.K. from 1825 to 1915. How much did industrial capitalism, as it emerged in the 19th century, how much did that have to do with utopian thinking and writing of this period, of this period of time? It had everything to do with it. The first great English-speaking utopian theorist and writer of the 19th century was Robert Owen. And Owen made his reputation as a progressive, reform-minded mill manager in Scotland, and people came from around the world to see this progressively run industrial facility because everybody understood. I mean, Blake, years before Robert Owen came on the scene, Blake had written about the dark satanic mills. And Blake foresaw with his poet's vision uh, the degradation that this meant for modern life. And so Robert Owen, the mill manager, goes from being a reforming industrialist to becoming a utopian idealist and is for a while one of the most uh, famous men in the English-speaking world with these grand utopian schemes that he puts forward. His vision is we've got to turn our back on industrialism. We've got to form these ideal communities of a limited size and 
Owen even comes to the United States and in New Harmony, Indiana, sets up this utopian colony that he hopes can be an alternative to the ugliness, degradation, and inequality he sees as inherent in uh, the industrial process. William Morris, who we'll talk about uh, much of this hour, William Morris wrote that the leading passion of his life was hatred of modern civilization. Are the the aspects of industrial capitalism that you just mentioned, are those the features of modern civilization that he despised, that he that he hated? Partly, yes. I'd say half that brutality of industrial civilization. But when Morris talked about his hatred of civilization, he meant as much Victorian middle-class culture, which is distinguished by its smug (laughs) certainty that they were living in the best of all possible worlds. And although most Victorians, uh, even Tories, recognized that there were certain unfortunate features of the industrial system, all of them were convinced that free market capitalism would soon take care of those problems that they had certainly, although the phrase hadn't been invented yet, they had a theory of trickle-down economics and that it was only a matter of what at most decades before industrial capitalism would bring the benefits of civilization, not only to Britain, but to its uh, widespread colonies. So there was, there was just a sense that progress was inevitable and that the engine of progress was industrial capitalism. And William Morris, he, of course, had a strong aesthetic sense. He developed a strong political sensibility. What would you say were his main complaints about capitalism? What, what had it done to people and to the natural environment that he invade against? Well, he came to his socialism through aesthetics, through his work as an artist and craftsman. The turning point for him was as a young man, 21 years old, he had not yet finished his studies at Oxford University, and he took a trip along with his great friend, Edward Byrne Jones, to northern France. And he saw the cathedrals of northern France, and it changed his life because he believed that here were examples of human creations of these anonymous medieval craftsmen who had created something extraordinarily beautiful and moving. Now, by that point, Morris was an atheist, even though he imagined when he went to Oxford that he would become a clergyman, a priest of the Church of England. By the time he took that trip to France, he'd left his religion behind, but still he was so deeply moved by these glorious cathedrals of Amiens, Rouen, and Chartres, he saw in them a material embodiment of what could happen if workers could be free from the machine and free to express themselves in their craft. And it helped Morris redefine art. He believed that art is man's expression of his joy and labor, which was an idea he took from John Ruskin, his mentor, who published a great book about architecture and work called uh, The Stones of Venice. And he has a chapter in that, uh, The Nature of Gothic. So the combination of reading Ruskin and going to northern France and seeing these great works of beauty convinced Morris that life didn't have to be as sordid and ugly as he saw life being in industrial England. It gave him a new new way of thinking that. And, and so he approached his socialism through an aesthetic sense. And then later on, increasingly, he made that critique not only of art and of work, that work under capitalism was inherently alienating without reading Marx. He came via Ruskin to a 
understanding of the alienation of labor under capitalism and under particularly industrial capitalism. And he understood that through a transformative socialism, we could recover beauty, we could recover joy in labor, and we could achieve a new, more perfect equality because he was horrified, as many were, by the inequalities of Victorian England, the extraordinary gap between the impoverished and the wealthy. He was entranced with the natural world. He, he wanted humans to live in harmony with nature. He saw industrial capitalism as making places and cities like London ugly. How early did this attraction to nature and the natural world and the outdoors come to William Morris? From his earliest days, he came from a wealthy background. His father was a financier in the city of London, and like many wealthy London financiers at that time, lived outside the city, commuted at considerable difficulty, considering the transportation infrastructure of that day, um, living in Walthamstow, which is now a northeastern section of greater London. But in those days, Walthamstow was largely rural. Morris, as an adolescent, the family wound up moving to a house that still exists in Walthamstow. You can go there. It's extraordinarily picturesque, a grand 18th century Georgian house. And behind it is an island surrounded by a moat. It was the site of a Norman era castle. So William Morris grew up in this beautiful environment. Um, Walthamstow is adjacent to Epping Forest. His family, we have a testimony that as a very young boy, he knew the names of the birds, he knew the names of the trees. He grew up with an extraordinary love and knowledge of nature. Michael Robertson is his name. He's professor of English at the College of New Jersey. We're talking about his book, The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacies. In the book, he tells the story of four utopian writers, Edward Bellamy, William Morris, Edward Carpenter, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And we are focusing today on William Morris, the designer, artist, poet, and writer who became one of England's most prominent socialists most prominent critics of capitalism. And I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So I think it was at Oxford, Morris decided to not pursue becoming a clergyman, a man of the cloth anymore, but an architect. And he apprenticed with an architecture firm in London, but he left the firm within the year. What, what lured him away? Dante Gabriel Rossetti, while he was still at Oxford, he met Rossetti, who was an incredibly charismatic artist and poet. And Rossetti, although he and Morris would later fall out, was an extraordinarily charming and generous person. And he met these two young men, William Morris, and Ned Byrne-Jones, and he insisted to both of them that you are wildly talented, you have it in you to be painters, and you must come to London and study art and begin painting. And Morris, we have a wonderful letter from him in which he said, well, I don't know that I have it in me to be a painter, but Rossetti says I do, and I'm going to follow what he tells me to do. And Rossetti was part of this uh, pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, wasn't he? What, what, was the, what was their mission? How did they want to, to change art? The pre-Raphaelites had a theory of art that artists from the Renaissance on, that is from Raphael on, had departed from nature and were simply imitating one another, were imitating previous art, and that the great art of the 
very early Renaissance and the late Middle Ages of the art of Giotto and Fra Angelico, the Italian painters, was true to nature, was true to life. Now, as a theory of art, that doesn't really hold water, but as a manifesto for a group of young artists who saw themselves as radicals, who wanted to forge a new movement in modern art of the time, of the Victorian era, it was enormously stimulating. It resulted in some very great paintings, I think, and some not so good, but mainly it gave a sense of identity to these young men who said, we're going to change the world through our art. How much did this influence Morris, William Morris, and you know, his sense of nostalgia, his hearkening back to, I guess, what he might have considered to be a, a golden age, a, a time in the Middle Ages where, yes, he would acknowledge there was some some violence and some corruption, but, but obviously he saw a lot that came out of it that was very good, including architecture and craftsmanship. Exactly. So Morris, as a young man, and then in the decades following his meeting with Rossetti began developing a theory of history. And the Victorians had what we call a Whiggish interpretation of history. That is, England has uh, progressed from the brutal Middle Ages through the glories of the Renaissance up to the apogee of modern Victorian culture. Morris turned that Whiggish interpretation on its head and said, in many ways, England reached its height in the Middle Ages when, despite brutality and sickness and war, he said, to read the histories, you think that was all that was there. But from the evidence of medieval cathedrals and homes, Morris was extraordinarily sensitive to the built environment. And he said, from the physical evidence of the Middle Ages, we can see that, in fact, much of the time of people in the Middle Ages was devoted to the creation of beauty, was devoted to craftsmanship and artisanship, and so that there was a joy in labor, despite it being a feudal society. There was a broad equality among the artisan class, and that we can recover some of that beauty, and some of that joy and labor in the modern world. In the modern world, in his modern world, mid-Victorian England, he observed, William Morris observed, that the minor arts, and you write this, were in a state of complete degradation, the minor arts being things like dinnerware, fabrics, wallpaper, ceramics, furniture, the, the stuff of everyday life. In what way did he see the minor arts having undergone this degradation? What, what was wrong with these things and the way they were produced that upset and disturbed William Morris? What was wrong was the machine, as opposed to the handcrafts of earlier eras. Now things were being produced by machines. The, the workman had been reduced to a tool. He got that from Ruskin, and he firmly believed that, that you know, you can you can either make a, a man of the workman or you can make a machine of him. Uh, that was what Ruskin said, and that was what Morris believed. So all those minor arts, and also Morris wanted to overturn hierarchy. The minor arts had fallen into a state of degradation because people thought that they were minor. He tried to obliterate hierarchy. Why should the plate that we eat off of be less significant than the accomplishments of a soldier. Uh, the designer of that dinnerware, the designer of the built environment is ultimately, Morris thought, more central to culture than those who are glorified by Victorian society, uh, the soldier, the politician, the aristocrat. So uh, William Morris, he at some point helps establish, co-founds the design firm Morris, Marshall, Faulkner & Company, known as The Firm. 
and he launches and he throws himself into the various products to be developed and created by the firm, uh, wallpaper, fabric, and the like. And, you know, we, we need to spend a moment, I think, talking about what's special about Morris's designs, many of which are still appreciated and lauded and used today. What what stands out about the designs that Morris created for the firm, for the customers of the firm? Well, thank God for Google Images, because anyone who's interested can go, and if you Google, say, Morris wallpapers or Morris textiles or Morris designs, uh, you can uh, see immediately a broad uh, range of his production. And I think what distinguishes them are a, their simplicity. Morris got away from the elaborate three-dimensional designs of most Victorian wallpapers and fabrics. Uh, his designs acknowledge the simple flatness of uh, the medium that he's working in, uh, paper or fabric. Uh, they don't uh, aim for a sort of a complex three-dimensionality. Um, and then the second thing that distinguishes them, aside from simplicity, is their close connection to the natural world. For example, so many of Morris's late designs are named after tributaries of the Thames, so that he's linking his designs to the organic, to the natural, and to the natural history of England, which he loves so much. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Michael Robertson joins me. He teaches English at the College of New Jersey. He's the author of books like Worshipping Walt, The Whitman Disciples, and Stephen Crane, Journalism and the Making of Modern American Literature. And we are talking about his most recent book, The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacy. And a big chunk of The Last Utopians is devoted to William Morris and his life and his ideas and his political, his radical social and political convictions. His current book project is a biography of William Morris, and that has the tentative title, William Morris, The Journey Toward Utopia. So Morris, you know, he he helps found this firm and he's doing his thing and he could have focused on kind of one aspect of the firm's production, a certain line of products having to do with uh, weaving or fabric dyeing or um, printing. Did William Morris confine himself to just one activity or craft? No. Morris had an extraordinary range, which is one of the things that I think has led to his still being of great interest to an huge number of people in Great Britain and the U.S. today. He achieved fame as a designer of wallpapers and uh, textiles. He also wove tapestries. He wove carpets. He set up a fine press, the Kelmscott Press, which produced what are, I think, by general agreement, the greatest hand-printed books in the English-speaking world of the 19th century. So he had an extraordinary range. And another thing that really makes Morris special as a designer and as a business owner, because the firm was a very successful design firm in the 19th century, was that Morris never produced anything that he didn't first try himself. So that he taught himself to weave tapestries before he began producing tapestries commercially. Uh, Before he began block printing fabrics, he taught himself to dye and learned to block print these uh, chintzes and other uh, fabrics so that he had a sense always of the art and the pleasure of the making. Morris spent enormous amounts of time weaving that first tapestry of his, we have his diary. He spent hundreds of hours over the course of nine months. He would get up every day and for two or three or six hours every day uh, would sit at the loom. This was at a time when he was writing these long narrative poems and uh, running this business. And yet every day he's getting up to weave tapestry himself. So Michael, you, you spoke earlier about 
William Morris and his, um, I don't know, maybe it could be called conversion into socialism. You talked about some of the ideas that animated his criticism of capitalism and his affinity, growing affinity towards socialist ideas. He joined the Social Democratic Federation in England. I guess that was one of the socialist groups in England in 1883. Um, was there a precipitating event? What made him decide to actually join a socialist grouping? It's interesting. He referred to it as a conversion. He referred to it as crossing the river of fire. And it happened right at the end of 1882 and beginning of 1883. So right around the new year, when often people make resolutions and try and change their lives. And I think a precipitating factor was in the 1870s, Morris moved into a new house in Hammersmith, which is a district in the west of London, right along the Thames. His house was a rather grand uh, three-story Georgian house facing the Thames. It's quite nice. But in the 1870s and 80s, when he was living there, those lovely Georgian houses lining the Thames were right up against some really desperate slums. And Morris talked about how it became intolerable to him that he could be sitting there in the comfort of his studio, writing his narrative poetry and making his gorgeous designs, which were, as he acknowledged, mostly furnished the homes of the wealthy. And meanwhile, he could hear coming through the window the curses and shouts and anger and pain of the slum dwellers who lived nearby. And Morris just finally became fed up with the injustice and inequality of his culture of what he called civilization, which for him was a word that meant nothing without scare quotes. And he said, um, it's intolerable to me, it should be intolerable to anybody. And there's a wonderful Morris quote, which you can get on posters, in which he says, I do not want art for a few any more than I want education for a few or freedom for a few. Morris was animated from the 1880s on by a desire to, above all, achieve a more just and equal world. Michael Robertson, professor of English at the College of New Jersey, author of The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacy. We'll take a short break and speak more with Michael about his very interesting book. And again, we are focusing on the section of the book about William Morris, the designer artist, poet, and writer, the inspiration for the arts and crafts movement, and in his day, one of England's most prominent socialists. Please stay with us. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Michael Robertson joins me. He's written books about Walt Whitman and Stephen Crane and modern American literature. He's writing a book on, it's a biography of William Morris, and a chapter of his book, The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacy, published by Princeton University Press, is devoted to William Morris. We're focusing on that chapter today, but you'll want to get this book to read about the three other utopian writers he addresses in this book, Edward Bellamy, Edward Carpenter, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman. So you write that within the small British socialist movement of the latter 19th century, there were at least two camps. The parliamentary reformers, who sought a gradual a gradual transition to socialism via legislative reform, right? People getting elected to office and doing their thing within the system. 
and those who advocated revolutionary violence. Where did Morris stand? He was between those two factions. He always opposed the parliamentary party because he basically thought simply working to reduce the workday, which in the Victorian era was, you know, at a minimum 60 hours a week for most industrial laborers, simply trying to reduce the work week to 50 or 40 hours or to try to increase wages, that essentially workers were still industrial slaves. They were slaves of the system of industrial capitalism. And to simply try to ameliorate that system was a waste of time. On the other hand, he was opposed to the parties of immediate revolutionary violence. He said a revolution may come, a revolution he was certain would come, and he was eager for that day, but he knew it wasn't yet. He did not think it was going to be in the 19th century. And in the meantime, he said, our strategy is to make socialists. And in some sense, though Morris had put his family's evangelical Anglicanism behind him, in some sense, he was still an evangelical. He believed that the work before him and his socialist colleagues was conversion. They had to make socialists. And that was the way towards a better future. And by making socialists, he meant writing and speaking about socialism, getting the word out. And one way he did that was by resorting to fiction. Now, he was a poet, he wrote essays, he wrote fiction, but he turned out an extraordinary utopian novel that you spend some time writing about in your book, The Last Utopians. And this is News From Nowhere. It was serialized first in magazines, and then it came out in book form in 1891. You write that it remains today the most widely admired of 19th century utopian fictions. So the story that you tell about the writing of this novel involves another novel, a novel called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, another of the utopian thinkers and writers you focus on in your book. What did Morris think of Looking Backward, and why did reading Looking Backward motivate him or spur him to write News from Nowhere, his own novel? Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward came out in 1888, and within a couple of years, it became one of the best-selling books of the 19th century. The only book you can compare it to is Uncle Tom's Cabin in terms of its popularity and its effect, and it was regularly labeled the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Industrial Era. Bellamy was a New England journalist and novel writer who, like Morris, was appalled by the era's injustice, and inequality. And he wrote this utopian novel, Looking Backward, in which his protagonist time travels into the future and uh, portrayed a socialist society that is perfectly orderly and predictable and that proved immensely attractive to millions of readers in the US and Great Britain. No one was more appalled by this book than William Morris. He felt that it simply portrayed the average middle-class person's comfortable existence put into the future in a more egalitarian form. But it didn't get to the things that Morris thought were most important, which is having fulfilling work, turning our backs on the idea that machine progress is the only form of progress, and in terms of social relationships in in which everyone shares the contemporary middle-class tastes and middle-class ideas of 
the desirable. Morris, in the words of E.P. Thompson, the great British historian and biographer of Morris, said, Morris was interested in the education of desire, to teach desire, to desire better, to desire more, not simply to extend the current life into a better future, but to really overturn our ideas of what we can desire. For Edward Bellamy, a better life meant less work. He found work distasteful. He wanted to reduce the amount of time ordinary people spent working. And the idea, of course, being the more leisure time, the better. What did William Morris think of that? He was appalled at the idea that we had to dismiss work as inherently unpleasant. There's a wonderful passage in News from Nowhere in which uh, the protagonist, uh, whose name William Guest, is in the future. And he talks about how people in his time thought work was uh, unpleasant. And the figure from the utopian future says, how can you make work seem unpleasant? It's like trying to make copulation unpleasant. For Morris, work was and should be as enjoyable as sex. It should be a realm of pleasure. It should be fulfilling both intellectually and physically. Morris loved working. He loved working with his hands. He loved creating. And he wanted a world where everyone could enjoy their work as much as he did. So did he believe in a sense that all work or every task or almost every task could be made into craftsmanship or a kind thereof, the kind of work that involved the worker in a, in a creative endeavor that would be gratifying both during the process and once whatever was made was completed? He did. For one thing, he thought he got away from the idea of which obsesses us as modern Americans of our careers. Uh, Morris thought that that was a foolish way to think. Much better for all of us to be a bit what an earlier utopian writer, Charles Fourier, called uh, the butterfly tendency, the butterfly temperament, that people naturally wanted to do a variety of work. So Morris didn't imagine that anybody would be doing any one task all the time. So that in his utopian novel, News from Nowhere, for example, the protagonist comes across a group of young men mending a road. Well, they're not spending their lives doing the hard, dirty work of road mending. Rather, that job is rotated among the community and so that people can enjoy it, the sense of physical labor, the sense of accomplishment for a limited amount of time. And they might go from, he imagined people going from road mending to doing haying in the countryside, to doing fine metal work, to being a ferryman on the River Thames, to serving a meal or cooking a meal. So that Morris had this idea that partly why people think work is inherently unpleasant is because people are constricted to one job for their entire career. We're talking about William Morris, the designer, poet, writer, and socialist with Michael Robertson, professor of English at the College of New Jersey, author of The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacy. And yes, one of those visionaries addressed in Michael's book is William Morris. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So William Guest, as you said, he's kind of the main uh, protagonist in this utopian novel by Morris, News from Nowhere. Um, interestingly, he's 56 years old, the same age that Morris was when he wrote this book. So William Guest, I guess the book begins, he, he's going to a Socialist League meeting. He comes out fuming. He longs for a different world. He goes to sleep. He awakens in this utopia in the 21st century, right? This book is written again in the late 19th century. So he wakes up in the 21st century. And um, this utopia, well, there are a number of interesting, notable things about the, these communities or this community. What's happened to government? It doesn't exist. Morris essentially had an 
anarchist orientation towards government. And now, unfortunately, when we hear the word anarchist now, it's used as a synonym largely for chaos and violence. But Morris was well acquainted with Peter Kropotkin, the great 19th century Russian anarchist theorist, who was a brilliant, nonviolent visionary who had a vision of a world without leadership, hierarchical leadership structures. Because after all, all anarchism means is without leaders. And so Kropotkin's most famous book is called Mutual Aid. And that phrase sums up Kropotkin's vision that he imagined localized communities in which people would work together and make decisions largely by consensus. Now, Morris never called himself an anarchist, in part because he laughed at the idea of consensus. He couldn't um, find consensus among his small group within the Socialist League. He had a sense that that was not going to happen. He believed you would have to have voting and will of the majority. So he did not call himself an anarchist. But like Kropotkin and the other great nonviolent anarchist theorists of the 19th century, Emma Goldman in the U.S. is another good example, he imagined a world without hierarchy, without authoritarianism. And it was a vision that I think has continued to resonate for a lot of people. You write that Kropotkin called Morris's society the utopian society depicted in this novel News from Nowhere by William Morris, quote, the most thoroughly and deeply anarchist conception of future society ever written. Uh, what about schools? Do schools exist in this future utopia depicted in William Morris's novel? When Guest, the protagonist, asks one of the residents of Utopia about the existence of schools, uh, the man misunderstands him. Well, I don't know what you mean. We speak of schools of fish, but what do schools have to do with children? Ivan Ilyich uh, published a famous book in the 1960s, De-Schooling Society. Morris portrays a de-schooled society in which the institution of the school has been abolished liberating children and adults, as Morris imagined, into lifelong learning. And so that people are free to pursue their passions. They're free to study uh, not only, and he imagined that people would certainly read the great authors that he loved. Morris was an extremely well-educated man. He imagined, of course, that that sort of book learning would go on, but book learning, he imagined a world where it was secondary to what he saw the genuinely enjoyable and important things to learn, where people would learn to thatch a roof or ride a pony or cook a meal or swim or sail or fish. Morris, in a way, prefigured uh, what it was one of the great educational reformers. He, in a way, prefigured, say, Montessori education or Waldorf education, which believes in the creative potential of every child and basically tries to get out of the way and let children's natural love of learning bloom. In William Morris's Future Utopia, again portrayed in News from Nowhere, this novel, are there any law courts... Is there any money? Does marriage exist? Well, Morris believed that once you abolish capitalism, this could lead to a world in which you abolish money. And if you abolish commercial transactions, then there's no need for the law because Morris is right. I mean, 90% of the law deals with commercial transactions. So if commercial transactions have been obliterated. He imagines a society without money. There's no need for law courts. Um, most crimes, even violent crimes, are committed because of poverty uh, and greed. And he imagined eliminating those. There would be no, basically no need for criminal law. He did acknowledge the power of sexual passion. And in News from Nowhere, he depicts actually twice um, love triangles that lead to violence. 
But aside from that inevitable clash of people's passions, he imagined a peaceful world where there was no need for lawyers. Uh, he imagined a world of liberated men and women who were able to come together in partnership and go apart without the intervention of the law and courts. So in that sense, uh, you can see why Kropotkin imagined this to be a beautiful depiction of an anarchist society. Does William Morris suggest in this novel that the utopia he's describing is something we have elements of in the present? Or does he say that, and is he presenting kind of utopia as a kind of ideal, a general vision, or something that we should actually work toward realizing in the future? I don't think Morris expected or wanted any reader to embrace his vision. It's not clear, in fact, that even William Morris would want to live in this world. And he writes that the only safe way of his of interpreting a utopia is in a, as an expression of the temperament of its author. He's very clear that this is a very personal book. And the protagonist of the book, whom he calls William Guest, is a very thin disguise for Mr. William Morris. We often talk of, are utopias blueprints or are they heuristics? Blueprints, I think, are clear. Is this a laying out of exactly what the future society should be? But if you think of utopia as a heuristic, as a spur towards imaginative thinking, as just a device for spurring the imagination, then Morris's portrait of nowhere, of this 21st century England, is a way to spur our own imaginations. He doesn't want us to embrace absolutely everything we see in this book, but he does want to defamiliarize our own world, our own world of violence, of inequality, of soulless, joyless work, and spur us all to think if there can't be alternatives. And are there pockets in contemporary society that we can build on? Are there things from the past that we can draw on to make a better future? The final chapter of your book, The Last Utopians, explores contemporary, everyday utopias that embrace the, the central values of these four utopian thinkers and writers that you address in this book. Can you share with us a couple of examples of these venues, venues you visited and examined and learned about and wrote about in this book? Sure. Well, let's take, for example, Edward Carpenter's heirs. You can find in England a group called the Edward Carpenter Community, in the United States a group called the Radical Fairies of men who come together on retreats. In the U.S. there is a, in Tennessee, a group of Radical Fairies who live uh, year-round in a rural site and who come together for generally for a week or more to celebrate gay men's, these are both a men's group, but gay men's transformative possibilities of alternatives to what they see as a violent, competitive, macho, heteronormative society. So I had uh, wonderful visits to retreats of both the Edward Carpenter community in England and the uh, Radical Fairies in the U.S. Um, I spent a day at my local water school where the vision of education is very congruent with what William Morris offered in News From Nowhere, where children spend their time knitting or sewing or singing or dancing during the school day. That that's as important as, you know, the more 
academic subjects. I was able to spend an afternoon at Occupy Wall Street. And I think the Occupy movement, as many people observed, offered in American society and to some extent uh, even uh, more broadly around the world, a vision of a working anarchist society. That name didn't get uh, bandied about a lot in part because anarchism has such a negative reputation in the US and UK. But Occupy Wall Street through its um, meetings, daily meetings, showed how a cooperative, non-hierarchical society could actually operate and thrive. And their slogan of we are the 99%, I think, still resonates in American and British culture. Um, finally, I spent some time um, in gardens because I think the contemporary food movement is a really nice example of everyday utopianism, of living out some portion of a transformed future in the here and now, uh, gardeners who turn their backs on industrial agriculture and try and promote local community, try and promote good food for all, try and promote justice for those involved in the food system. Um, they're living out uh, utopianism in their daily lives. Michael Robertson, my guest, professor of English at the College of New Jersey. We've been talking about his book, The Last Utopians, Four Late 19th Century Visionaries and Their Legacy. We focused, of course, mostly on William Morris, the important and influential and fascinating designer and artist and writer and socialist. Thanks so much, Michael, for writing this book and for joining me today. Thank you, C.S. And that interview was recorded on October 21st, 2019. And this is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.